Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and your podcast host coming to you live from Archer, Florida. Today, we're going to talk about the domestication and radiation of pumpkins. It's the season, right? It's time to talk about pumpkins. And it's funny because we originally did this topic about uh, four years ago, (laughs) only the recording didn't work so well. So it's taken me a little while to catch up with our guest again. So we're speaking with Professor Harry Paris. He's a senior researcher in vegetable crops at the Volcani Center's Neve Yar campus in northern Israel. So welcome to the podcast again, Dr. Paris. Thank you, uh, Kevin. It's very good to be here. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. It was very nice to hear your voice. Um, you know, I'm here in Florida, and you know, you were here for a while as a research visitor, right? Hey, that's right. I was in Florida twice on sabbatical, once at your campus, uh, the, the UF campus in Gainesville, and another time at the, the UF campus in Fort Pierce. Yeah, so two places here in, that you're familiar with. Um, I'm actually out in Archer, so I'm uh, southwest of campus. You might remember that little town that you'd hit on the way to Cedar Key. Yes, Archer Road. Well, isn't it from Gainesville to Archer? That's right. Yeah, I'm about uh, about 20 minutes out of town, and uh, and 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 I actually uh, am married to a farmer who she grows pumpkins. <laughs> so uh, so this is perfect. I know a little bit more about them than I did uh, last time we talked. Um, but we're going to talk about pumpkins. And so what is this thing we call a pumpkin? Well, a pumpkin um, is a round fruit. Um, pumpkins belong to the genus Cucurbita. And in Cucurbita, we have fruits that are edible. And these are called pumpkins and squash. And we have fruits that are usually small and bitter and generally inedible, those are called gourds. The round edible fruits are called pumpkins, and the fruits that are not round but are edible are called squash. That's the general lingo. That's generally the way that people talk about them. You don't think about uh, zucchini as being a pumpkin. Zucchini is a squash, or a crookneck is crookneck squash. It's a squash, not a pumpkin. But pumpkins are, our, are the kinds of things you just want to pick uh, pick up uh, off the ground and hug. Nice round pumpkins. They are edible, so they're also used for decoration. Well, there's a couple of kind of pumpkins that we see here in Florida that seem to do better than, you know, the big Halloween type of pumpkin. Um, there's things called seminal pumpkin. Um, another thing that we have that we just call it tropical pumpkin, but these seem to do very well in the in the heat of this region, 
And is there is there a lot of diversity aside from the you know decorative pumpkin that we sometimes think about? Oh, there's quite a bit of diversity in the genus Cucurbita. We have three species that are widely distributed in cultivation around the world. We have the familiar Halloween decorative pumpkins. They belong to one species called Cucurbita people. And then also at Halloween, you see these uh, giant pumpkins. These belong to the species uh, appropriately named Cucurbita maxima. And then finally, we have the tropical pumpkin and seminal pumpkin and butternut squash. They all belong to the third species, Cucurbita moscata. And um, Cucurbita pipo is native to North America. That is native. It grows wild gourds, the ancestors of all of the pumpkins, and wild gourds growing in what is now the United States and Mexico. These are, were the ultimate ancestors of the Halloween pumpkins whilst uh, Cucurbita maxima, the giant pumpkins, and Cucurbita muscata, the tropical pumpkins, are both very likely native to South America. Cucurbita muscata to tropical northern part of South America. Okay, I didn't know that. So the so these are South American uh, origin. And uh, the Cucurbita people are North American. but the Okay, the peoples are North American, Cucurbita but the muscata and the maxima. Yes. Okay, and so the the if we if we focus on Maxima and focus on uh, Moscata, those are coming from um, South America. When how, who was the original domesticator? I mean, and did they find these were indigenous peoples of uh, of the Americas? But what did they find useful about the pumpkin? Oh, okay. Well. Perhaps each species might have been domesticated for uh, uh, different reasons or for more than one reason. Uh, Cucurbita muscata, I suspect, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect was first domesticated for use of its fruits, probably the young fruits and then the mature fruits because the um, what happens in uh, primitive or, or wild gourds is that the... Um, the ripe fruits, the mature fruits, tend to dry out and be very fibrous. Whereas the young fruits, uh, you could barely eat them if they happen uh, not to be bitter or if you boil them in water about eight times over to uh, uh, drain out the bitterness. Um, so I suspect that Cucurbita muscata was first um, domesticated for use of its fruits. Cucurbita maxima maybe also for that reason, or like Cucurbita people, was probably first domesticated for use of its, for eating of its seeds, because the flesh was uh, bitter. And in the mature fruits, the flesh is hard, dry, and fibrous. Cucurbita people, the North American species, was probably first domesticated either for the use of its seeds, which are not bitter, for eating its seeds, or perhaps for eating its young fruits. Um, if most of the plants would have had bitter uh, fruit flesh, but the bitterness could be uh, drained out after boiling in water six, seven, or eight times, or if they came upon mutant, which had uh, non-bitter flesh, which had um, uh, uh, insipid flesh, these could have been, could have been eaten uh, as well. 
So perhaps cucurbitive people was domesticated first for seeds or domesticated first for immature fruits. And later on, through cultivation, um, palatable mature fruits were selected for. In any case, it's interesting that uh, in, because of the wild distribution of cucurbitive people over much of North America, it is, I believe, reasonable to suppose that different tribes of Native Americans ran into these plants and nurtured them and domesticated them for different reasons. Maybe some for eating the fruits, whereas other tribes used them for eating the seeds. Do you think that there was any, or is there any evidence that they were domesticated as uh, vessels? Like, you know, uh, you look at uh, like the bottle gourd and some of the gourds that have been used. Um, are, I know it's a different cucurbit, but are those or perhaps any of the pumpkins also used maybe for that kind of reason? Well, yes, the bottle gourds have a very uh, thick, uh, woody rind which makes them ideal for those purposes. There are uh, um, researchers who believe that cucurbita pipa was also used for similar purposes, perhaps for use as fishing floats and stuff like that. Um, I would think that that would have been a relatively minor purpose. Uh, we are uh, living in a society of abundance. Where we have the food of all kinds, of all sorts around everywhere. You just go over to the supermarket and pick out what you like. But let's remember that uh, native peoples, they had to uh, work hard to find food and uh, they were hungry. I mean, there wasn't that much to choose from. And I would think that a plant that they would go ahead and nurture would be one which provides them with some sort of sustenance. Um, yeah, there would, be a uh, there would be much less motivation to find something for fishing floats, uh, for example, for such uses. I think that what drove people to nurture plants was hunger. No, sure. It, it makes the most sense. I seem to remember something, and maybe this comes from last time we spoke. Wasn't there some evidence that you would dry the flesh and, and have it almost like a preserved jerky um, from, uh, from pumpkins? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the ways that the familiar uh, Halloween or so-called pie pumpkins um, were um, selected in North America. Uh, they were selected for uh, uh, for having a fruit rind which is not lignified, that is not woody. The wild-type gourds and the primitive pumpkins have these woody rinds or, that are tough to, to cut with a knife. But if you select out that trait, uh, you, you select for a single recessive gene for non-woodiness, non-lignified rind, you can easily slice these pumpkins and uh, hang up strips of the pumpkin flesh as jerky, as you said, to dry. And this gives you a uh, very nutritious uh, source of food for the winter or for travel, say, or for hunting or whatever. Certainly, this was uh, probably a very uh, early and uh, very widespread use of pumpkins, perhaps for centuries, if not thousands of years, by Native American peoples. Yeah, probably was a very central source of vitamin A. Definitely. And uh, pumpkins have a, also a, a wide smattering of other vitamins and minerals with them. Definitely a concentrated, nutritious uh, uh, source. 
So when did the pumpkin move from South America to North America? Oh, but you have the native North American uh, pumpkins. They were here the whole time. Okay. The uh, Cucurbita moscata was already in the Caribbean islands and in Florida probably uh, before the arrival of Columbus um, because, again, about, of its adaptation to the tropical climates. But Cucurbita maxima, uh, as a more uh, subtropical and temperate, much like the North American Cucurbita people, well, it evidence that it left South America prior to the arrival of European explorers. It's possible, but we just have no evidence for, for it ever having left that continent prior to 1492. It's really interesting, the different uh, kinds that appear to be um, the tropical pumpkins. And I never really appreciated this until relatively recently, where we actually... Uh, eat these on a pretty regular basis because they're, they're delicious. You can actually, the best thing we did with it was smoke one. We actually took out the seeds and then you smoke the rind uh, in a uh, smoker. And, it, and it's really a fantastic uh, flavor for soups or just straight vegetables. And uh, it was really a surprise because uh, when we, you know, I grew up thinking a pumpkin was this thing that you, you used on, uh, Halloween to decorate with, you know, I didn't, didn't realize it's really strong food value. Are there ways that it's used in other parts of the world um, where it, I mean, is it really food in most parts of the world? And we just have this funny custom of using it as a decoration. Well, um, if we remain on the subject of the tropical pumpkins, the Cucurbita Moscata ones um, in Puerto Rico, they're the number two crop after vegetable crop after tomatoes. Uh, Cucurbita moscata is widely distributed in the subtropics and tropics around the world, and they're used in cooking, uh, various cooking recipes, uh, regional or local cooking recipes. My mother-in-law, may she rest in peace, for the Jewish New Year, she would prepare a uh, stew uh, of using meat, beets, uh, green beans, or, uh, or um, black-eyed peas, and uh, pumpkin. And it was absolutely delicious. I sometimes ask my wife to make that special uh, meal for me, not, have, not to have to wait for the Jewish New Year. Uh, and, <laughs> to have it. it is absolutely delicious. And I never knew that pumpkins could be so delicious until I tasted uh, the stew that my mother-in-law prepared. And um, you also have high-quality pumpkins or uh, winter squash, also from uh, the other two species, uh, Cucurbita maxima and uh, Cucurbita people. And some of these can be absolutely delicious in this same recipe, and I'm sure in uh, other recipes. Um, small pumpkins and uh, acorn squash are used in this area for uh, stuffing. And it can be stuffed with uh, anything, with other uh, vegetables or with quinoa or um, with uh, meat and rice, and they're absolutely delicious. I think that the recipes that are familiar, say, in the United States for use of pumpkins, the recipes are a very narrow base, and I just think it's, it's really a pity because uh, most Americans don't really know how delicious pumpkins can be uh, using uh, recipes from other countries. Yeah, it's, it really is a shame because they grow extremely well and seem to be resistant to disease. And there's so many good varieties that I think it's such an untapped resource. 
Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Harry Paris. He's uh, an emeritus researcher from the Neve, yeah, our research campus, the Volcani Center in Israel. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The term post-truth was added to the dictionary this last year. It refers to a political climate where emotion rules over evidence, and truths are framed by feelings of a majority rather than what is, in fact, reality. It happens in science, too, and that's why science communication is more important than ever. And while you, gentle podcast listener, are a critical component of science dissemination. Thank you for listening to this podcast, but most of all, thank you for sharing the information with friends and families. Remind them of the good things technology can do. And of course, if you could write a review on this podcast on iTunes, it would be very much appreciated because it raises our visibility and helps us share more science. When misinformation abounds, credible sources need to shine, and you control the science chamois. Fact-free policy decisions can only be countered by a literate electorate, and you hold a key position in helping spread the evidence-based stories of science. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Harry Paris. And Professor Paris is a senior research scientist, retired senior research scientist at Israel's Ministry of Agriculture uh, Volcani Center at the Neveya, our research campus. And we're talking about pumpkins. And he was a specialist in, uh, or is a specialist in, you didn't just uh, forget everything when you retired. <laughs> you are a specialist in, uh, in vegetable crops. And we're speaking about pumpkins, and uh, is this tis the season? And we've been talking about their use as a food crop, much more than just a decoration, and something that we should appreciate for many more of its improvements. And when we talk about the genetic improvements in pumpkin that have been made, what have been the focus areas for breeders over, say, the last 100 years? Well, of course, uh, with pumpkins, uh, they have several important uses one of these of course being for eating another one for decoration and the two um while it's nice to have something that's high quality that also looks nice uh, it's hard sometimes to merge getting uh say a decorative pumpkin that's uh, of the utmost quality and vice versa um but i think that uh the eating quality, to me, anyhow, my bias is, is, the, is the number one item. And eating quality in pumpkin is not a, something that is uh, very simple. Um, I think that the ultimate, uh, uh, what is considered to be the, the variety of having the most outstanding quality or the uh, is a variety of actually of squash. It's not round. It's something called buttercup. But any person who breeds pumpkins or winter squash, from that matter, for that matter, wants to have something which is which has uh, the quality of taste and texture and so on as the uh, buttercup 
winter squash, which is a variety of the Cucurbita maxima, the giant pumpkin species. But buttercup is a small, hmm. uh, dark green uh, uh, turban squash. Um, it's the standard for quality, and many other uh, Cucurbita maximas have been bred since, which have been bred which match the quality of uh, buttercup. But um, as quality itself, the quality of the flesh is a uh, is a complex character. Not everybody always agrees what tastes the best and what not. I did quite a bit of breeding work with uh, acorn squash of Cucurbita people to breed it for the utmost quality. And I um, did this from three angles. The first angle was to try to get the blackest green exterior so as to have the most photosynthesis in the rind with the hope that some of the photosynthates would be integrated into the fruit flesh that we eat below. Another idea was to somehow increase the sweetness and for this, I was very fortunate in meeting uh, Dr. James R. Baggett of the uh, Oregon State University at a meeting in which he kindly gave me some uh, germplasm of sweet acorn squash. Um, but the squash were quite small and yellow in color. And I knew I had to have powdery mildew resistance in order to ensure the fruit quality. I knew this because any melons that came down with powdery mildew, even if they were to be very, very sweet, if they got came down with powdery mildew, they wouldn't taste good. So it took me many, many years to get all of these traits together in acorn squash. And finally, in 2007, um, we were able to release a new acorn squash called table sugar with twice the uh, soluble solids, twice the sugar content of any American acorn squash. Of, an, of a very unusual uh, chestnut flavor. And with its black-green rind, it kept the green color for a very long time in storage. And the Israeli public has just uh, gone crazy about it. They love it because of the extreme quality. But I am not a genius. I'm just like many others in America before me that uh, bred high-quality pumpkins and squash, such as uh, Dr. Brent Loy over at the University of New Hampshire and uh, Dr. Dermot Coyne uh, out in the Midwest at the University of Nebraska, if I remember correctly, Dr. W Linda Wessel Beaver of the University of Puerto Rico and Dr. Don Maynard of your University of Florida and others and others who've been uh, breeding, who bred uh, for many years uh, for high quality in pumpkins and winter squash, and their varieties are, um, and Dr. Baggett of Oregon State University, of course, and their varieties are uh, leading today, uh, the ones that are most appreciated for quality in the United States and in other parts of the world today. And um, how this stuff was done, it wasn't done with the latest uh, bio uh, techniques, but of course not with genomics. Very often it was just done on a basis of tasting, trial and error of taste. Yes, bolstered with taking soluble solids content and all that. But it was just basically what 
tastes the best. And uh, this is old-fashioned. One might call it primitive in the genomics era. But this is how it's been uh, accomplished. And um, see if the new uh, techniques of uh, biotechnology and genomics uh, will offer for us um, a faster way of breeding, um, breeding high-quality squash and pumpkins. Well, you just mentioned kind of a who's who of breeding of, of pumpkins in academia, you know, in academic breeding programs, but it's not a central focus like it used to be. It seems like most of this has gone private. And so how much of pumpkin improvement is really happening in the public breeding space? In the public breeding space, we have uh, Dr. Michael Masaryk from the Cornell University, and he's done an excellent job. He's new to the game. He's a younger researcher, and he's done an excellent job in breeding uh, some new high-quality pumpkins and squash. Um, but yes, a lot has gone over to private. But in private, don't forget, uh, most of these private companies, uh, most of them are large conglomerates today, they have to... Uh, bring uh, a somehow, uh, they, they have to justify for the stockholders what they're doing, and they tend to breed uh, um, for traits that their farmers are most interested in. And the farmers, they want productivity, and they want the insurance policy called disease and pest resistance. Whilst in the public uh, sector, you don't have the pressure of the stockholders and giving them something for their money by five o'clock in the afternoon. And so things that are more, the, the public breeders are more responsive to the consumers rather than the stockholders. And so the public breeders can focus on things like quality, which don't bring in a, a lot of uh, profit. Now that's for the uh, concerning the uh, quality, the eating quality, but if for decoration, it's something else. The farmers are interested in selling decorative pumpkins, then they want some other traits that are there. They want size. They want the overall beauty, the overall appearance, showing the uh, grooves running along the length of the pumpkins. They want the intense orange color. And no less important, they want what is called a strong handle, strongly attached to the fruit, the handle being the peduncle of the fruit. It needs mm -hmm. It needs to be firmly, not to uh, um, uh, spontaneously detach from the fruit if the fruit is picked up. They need something that uh, looks good and can be easily handled. And these the uh, private is able to supply. That's an interesting point that about the uh, handle, you know, the uh, peduncle, uh, the thing that attaches to the top of the fruit is that yeah. in just about every other fruit I can think of, you want one that extremely easily detaches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So here's a case where you want something that does not attach, which is, does not detach, which is really kind of a, a change in breeding priorities. What are some of the other traits that we don't think about? Well, um, of course, for the decorative pumpkins, you must have a non-lignified rind. You, if it has a, a lignified rind, you can't carve very effectively that pumpkin. So you want a, a non-lignified rind so you can make nice, uh, intricate faces uh, on the pumpkin. We want those 20 longitudinal grooves from the peduncle going down to the, uh, going down to the uh, styler, the blossom end. Um, we want the intense orange color. We want the, the, the 
unripe color of green to fade just on time when the fruit is ripe. We want the flesh to be not too thick and not too thin. If it's, if it's too thick, it might be good for eating, but it's more difficult to carve. And if it's too thin, well, it's not going to hold up uh, under any kind of handling. So it has to be the flesh uh, of the pumpkin has to be just right. Um, preferably, it should also be, uh, to some degree, orange, because after the pumpkin is carved, you still want to have the inside uh, looking uh, orange rather than, say, white. Um, and... Um, yeah, basically, and now we're also seeing new color combinations coming in, being accepted in the American market. In markets uh, around the globe, uh, other colors are natural in pumpkins. We see in Europe, we see pumpkins that have broad green stripes on the orange background. And we now have in the States, finally, a company has introduced yellow broad stripes on the orange background. I think they might have read one of my papers on uh, a, this reversed striping, what I called, where the, you have lighter stripes rather than darker stripes. And you have other colors uh, and other color patterns. Some companies are introducing uh, warded pumpkins, but these warded pumpkins must necessarily have lignified rinds, so you don't use them for color, you just use them to show off the warts. All right, so. <laughs> be popular some people and uh, you also have uh, you can have bicolor pumpkins based on the bicolor or B gene and so it seems like endless given the polymorphy that we see in cucurbita people as well as the other pumpkin species it seems to be almost endless the combinations that one can get of uh, colors and sizes and uh, patterns and such as grooving and ribbing and uh, lobing of the pumpkins, it seems to be almost endless. There's only two things. If I had to dream or if I had to say I have an endless, if, or if I had an endless genomics, what is missing in all of our pumpkins? Well, I would love to see a purple pumpkin someday. We just don't have the anthocyanin traits uh, in almost all of the cucurbits. We don't have them. And I would love to see genes for synthocyanin somehow introduced into uh, the genus Cucurbita so we could have purple pumpkins. Bluish pumpkins, like the, what's called the Queensland blue in Cucurbita maxima, but it really, really blue. I would love to see purple pumpkins and, uh, and blue pumpkins. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> well, I've seen the blue ones. They have the blue ones uh, around these days. You see these occasionally. But yes. when you talk about purple, I think that's a really intriguing idea. But it, you, you mentioned uh, that maybe that trait wasn't even present in the cucurbitaceae or in the cucurbits. It, yes. is, is there really just no uh, anthocyanin produced in cucurbits? Or is that something, uh, I mean, is that just a trait that does not exist? Well, there is a species in South America called Sicana odorifera, and it seems to be able to produce purple fruits. Uh, but I don't know if that's how that's based. If that's on if that's on anthocyanins or somehow on carotenoids. Uh, but um, other than that, I don't know of any cucurbits that are able to produce uh, uh, purple fruits. 
And so it's possible that the cucurbitaceae in their evolution Cretaceous period uh, some 70 or 70 million or more years ago somehow just lost these genes for production of anthocyanins. That's an interesting issue because the anthocyanins are producing that purple pigment. But that's also from the same biosynthetic pathway that goes to lignin. So maybe it's a lignification issue um, was the preferred route of use through your phenylpropanoid pathway there. And, uh, and probably the purple one that you mentioned in South America, that's probably a mutation in uh, conversion to beta carotene. It's probably just accumulating a lot more lycopene and so rather than going to beta carotene that may be the maybe the trait i'll have to look that up yeah okay <laughs> well, i always get excited to talk about plant genetic improvement when we have a guest on like you who knows a lot about the background and all i see is this tremendous potential for things that we really could do if we were excited about that kind of genetic improvement um just in terms of practicality though what are the big challenges for pumpkin growers that uh the, what are some of the traits that have been important? And you mentioned powdery mildew resistance, but are there other ones as well? Well, pumpkins are grown around the world and uh, from a whole variety of different uh, climates. And so what farmers would need, say, in a dry climate is completely different than the farmers in a climate which has uh, rains during the growing season. I think uh, that, for example, in the eastern United States, you have these... Uh, problems of uh, Phytophthora. I'm sure that researchers at the University of Florida and in New York State are, are very familiar, and in Illinois, are very familiar with uh, these uh, occur in wet climates. I think Illinois, by the way, is the largest pumpkin producing state in the United States, and that most of those, if I understand, are grown for processing, and these are uh, uh, tropical pumpkins, actually, Cucurbita muscata pumpkins. But, um, yeah, the problems in, or growers need in uh, areas which have rains during the growing season are different than those that, uh, say, are growing them in um, climate, Mediterranean climates or in the Middle East. Um, uh, what might be underappreciated is that uh, the tropical pumpkin, Cucurbita moscata, can be grown in uh, dry summers in these dry regions, and that it's the moscata pumpkins that are the leaders in such places like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and North Africa. Um, they seem to have, or at least the varieties of land, uh, what's generally grown in these places, seem to have drought tolerance. And I just uh, uh, wonder, you know, you think of Cucurbita moscata as being adapted to these tropical, rainy tropical climates, but apparently it has uh, the potential for adaptation to dry climates as well, and this may, may be underappreciated. That's a really good point. It may just be an overall stress tolerance because I know that when they grow in the tropics, you know, we're bombarding these things with all kinds of fungal pests and insect pests. Yet these are really the, the, the Moscata uh, plants, the tropical pumpkins are extremely large, strong plants that seem to be resistant to everything. Yeah. And so maybe it doesn't surprise me that drought is also part of that package. Yeah. Well, uh, I look at it perhaps at a slightly different perspective. 
because we have in the uh, uh, um, genus Cucurbita, we have 12 species, and some of these species are xerophytes, adapted to desert, desert climates. Um, uh, even the cultivated species Cucurbita or Gyrosperma from uh, Mexico, it also grows in semi-arid areas. It's grown mainly for its uh, seeds. But nonetheless, I just can't help but wonder if it's like that potential already exists in the genus Cucurbita, and that you have a kind of a gradient from the um, from the tropical species growing in tropical uh, wet tropics, such as uh, Cucurbita okeechobeensis, uh, wild species, and you have those wild species like uh, uh, Cucurbita fetidissima, which uh, just love these uh, deserts. I just can't help but wonder if, uh, it, like, the potential is there in the genus Cucurbita. We just haven't yet looked at these things um, in a uh, replicated uh, in replicated scientific experiments. They haven't been designed, and one of the reasons is because, as you say, these plants are so wild growing; they just cover huge areas. You need a huge area to to have a replicated trial. Yeah, that's true. If you wanted to do a selection of uh, 5,000 plants, you'd need a few yeah. acres, that's for sure. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Um, so w what is the future of pumpkins and pumpkin genetic improvement? Do you think that we or are some of the programs like the program at Cornell or UC Davis, whatever, are they looking at traits using modern genomics tools? Well, there's an entire Kukurbit uh, genomics uh, website, which... Um, into which uh, are contributed or networked uh, all of the uh, scientists, uh, public scientists uh, in the United States uh, working on cucurbit genetics and genomics. And um, the uh, pumpkins and squash have traditionally have gotten less attention uh, in all fields of science uh, than uh, melons, cucumbers, and watermelons. Um, but still, uh, there is work being done and the, using these uh, latest uh, technologies uh, with pumpkins and such. And I think uh, Michael Mazurek of Cornell University, professor at Cornell University, is leading the way with um, pumpkins and squash and uh, genomics and genetics. <laughs> well, that's pretty exciting because I, I think that, the, and this is what's really cool about genomics in, in general, is that there is a huge investment in things like cucumbers, but all of the information that we're learning in cucumbers and watermelons can translate to pumpkins and squashes because they are so closely related. And a lot of what we're going to learn from these other more highly valued crops uh, should translate to genetic improvement in pumpkins and, uh, and, and squash and hopefully more for the edible, because I think we, I think we really are missing the boat with genetic improvement of something that uh, could have much more food value than we give it. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, I think we, we see we have so many, uh, so many fewer uh, vegetable crop breeders, but especially uh, pumpkin breeders uh, in the United States and other developed countries today, because they, over the years, uh, there hasn't been much public funding for breeding. And it is a shame because it's the public breeders who have focused on fruit quality. Uh, so it's uh, like an own goal in, uh, in soccer. We, there's no money in it, and people 
especially in today's uh, uh, academic academia and academic world, people, if there's no funding, the, then there's no work done in that particular field. The funding goes to things which are uh, 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 excite uh, granting uh, agencies a whole lot more. Well, the big problem with uh, thinking about the funding for breeding programs is the time scale at which success happens. And you can't just invest like a three-year grant to improve pumpkins. You know, this is something that's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think it's something that, you you know, we, you, you have to have 10, 15, 20, 30 years before you'll have the best things coming from your program. Isn't that true? That's absolutely true. From the time I had the idea to breed the uh, improved uh, the Israeli acorn squash, it took 28 years. <laughs> and I did not get a single cent of public uh, funding to do it. I had to use, uh, I had to do it in my so-called spare time. Wow, that that's pretty amazing. So you did this as kind of, as a uh, as a part of your or part of your research program, but it was all done kind of on the side as like a side project, or it was it was all done on the side. I had to work harder on the stuff which I had the granting stuff for, and uh, which I had grants for. Um, but this was like a side project that I did it one could say on my own time. Yeah, I guess you know I do that here. We have quite a few different plants that we find something that comes out that's interesting. Um, like you know when we. Uh, have a couple flats of lettuce seedlings and we forget to water them and one of them survives. <laughs> you know, we take that one and we, we take oh, care of that yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is, uh, you know, it's really just opens the question to, you know, an, an appreciation for pumpkins and what they are and where they came from. Um, it's something that we don't think about very much that this time of year uh, always stirs me to think to learn more about. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for being a guest with me here today. Kevin, it's been my, my pleasure. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's been a while since we talked about domestication and breeding of a plant crop. And uh, it was really nice to be able to talk to Professor Paris. Um, please um, uh, continue to write your reviews and share this podcast with other people. Uh, tell other people about pumpkins, where they came from and where they're going. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.